0: Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate.
1: Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I'm your host, Ben Myers, bullpen research and consulting, consultant to the stars. We have another guest host today, but this time, another lender, Joel say your last name. Apostle. Apostle. Yeah. <laughs> Close. You're on what side of the business at Cameron Stevens?
0: Origination. origination. Dead, dead origination.
1: Dead origination. All right. Perfect. So bringing a little bit of a different flavor from Steve, you know, not much of a, not, not as, not as crazy as Steve, but still more bringing more r- yeah. much more well-rounded yeah. for sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, someone that is also very well-rounded is Robert Barron and he is the sponsor along with BCGI Barron Consulting Group, an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers, and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate, and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs, and fund managers searching for talent. They are a trusted source for career advice and guidance for real estate professionals in North America. BCGI can be reached at www.bcgi.ca. Well, thank you,
0: everyone, for joining us again. And we have a a great guest. Joel, take it away. Our next guest. Yeah, thank you very much for the introduction. I wish you did a little more research on on me, but that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Our next guest uh, joined Woodburn in 2021 and leads the investment team. Prior to taking the role of Senior Vice President and Head of Investments at Woodburn, he was the co-head of Global Real Estate and Senior Portfolio Manager at Hoop a major Canadian pension plan with over $100 billion in net assets, and over $16 billion in global real estate portfolio. Uh, prior to Hoop, he worked at Brookfield Financial and also Avis Young. He's a board member of Toronto Community Housing and has an MBA from the U of T and a BA from Queen's University. He's Toronto, born and raised, as he just mentioned previously. Welcome to the show, Nick McRae. Great. Thanks for being here. Thank you. To me, thanks for <laughs> having yeah, me. Thanks, uh, thanks, thank exactly. We
1: We appreciate <laughs> it. So, let's let's take it all the way back. We like to uh discuss a little bit of our uh, um you know our guest career so it's it's two thousand five. You are a leasing associate at Avis and Young. How did you land that gig and uh and what were you doing uh, at the time how did you how did you decide that you wanted to be in the real estate
2: game? yeah maybe I'll, I'll rewind it just slightly uh born and raised in Toronto as mentioned went to queen's University really my main occupation there was playing rugby and uh Uh, associated events. And when I finished school uh, with a politics degree, had aspirations of maybe being a sports lawyer, LSATs corrected me to that pretty quickly (laughs) and uh, went to plan B. Um, Playing rugby at the time, one of the major sponsors of our club was a residential real estate agent. And uh, I didn't have anything better going on. So joined him, realized very quickly, I hated residential real estate uh, for a whole (laughs) bunch of reasons, whether it was, you know, really targeting your friends and family for, for listings or working, you know, evenings and weekends, uh, as well as the day in terms of hustling for listings, but found, I liked the real estate part and without a business background, really the only avenue to pursue real estate was leasing brokerage where really with a university degree, a suit and a tie and uh, a willingness to cold call, you you had a shot and, uh, and a desk and, um, Spe- landed at Avis Young, great company, great culture. Uh, the people I worked in the bullpen there are, are lifelong friends and, and friends in the business. And we've all sort of gone different directions in real estate, but stayed super tight. So I'll always remember my time there, but realized reasonably quickly within a couple of years, leasing was not the area I wanted to focus on, Learned more about investments and became really engaged and interested in that. And so looked for opportunities to, to participate in that part of the market. Uh, landed a role at Brookfield Financial, which uh, is now rebranded as Sarah Global and spun out of Brookfield. Uh, But essentially, it was a capital markets uh, property brokerage group. So really advising clients, mainly outside of Brookfield on property brokerage, debt equity, debt raising, equity raising. And that was sort of my really my introduction to institutional real estate. I was there for a couple of years. And then uh, maybe we'll get to sort of Life lessons and career uh, elements, but uh, was that was during the early parts of the financial crisis was let go from Brookfield, and that was actually a real wake up call. Was fortunate to land at Hoop, had a great run at Hoop, uh, and sort of was part of a, a growing team, growing portfolio, rising tides sort or of lifts all boats. And then more recently, Woodbourne. But happy to sort of dig into any of those that's sort of a, a mouthful to, to run through.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Did so. you start with a, with a team at Davidson Young, or were you-
2: Yeah, I worked with, uh, worked with Tim Hooten, uh, who's a downtown office leasing guy. and was uh, He's still there, and was partnered with he was partnered with David Warren, uh, and his associate was a, was a fellow named David Tweedy. Uh, so we were quite tight at the time. David's gone on to sort of uh, really, really uh, successful things at RBC and their, their real estate capital markets group.
1: Interesting. Interesting. So you you spent twelve years at the uh, Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan. Um, you know, tell us maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, about some of the projects you worked on there, and 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 how Hoop was involved, and 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 maybe even how involved the pension gets in the actual real estate development or. Ownership.
2: Yeah, great, great compound question there with lots of elements to it <laughs> yeah, in terms of we, trying to remember. We, we, can,
1: we can go in many <laughs> but,
2: different uh, ways. <laughs> you know, to, to kick it off, uh, when I joined Hoop, it was uh, early. It was the start of 2009. The fund was about 28 billion. The real estate portfolio was two or three billion, and there was four of us in the group. Wow. Um, so it was a real sort of, uh, and then going right into the financial crisis. Really interesting over that 10 to 12 year period. Your period Both the industry grew up, and pension funds became much more direct and active investors. At the time, we were mainly indirect investing, uh, joint venturing, um, largely a Canadian portfolio with a little bit of international. And then over the next 12 years, took a much more direct uh, investing approach, still partnering as a predominant form, really playing the investment portfolio management role, and then partnering with groups and using third-party service providers to provide asset management, development management, property management, et cetera. And then growing the international portfolio, when, when I left, it was roughly 50-50, uh, but on a much bigger pool of capital, $16 billion as, as was mentioned, in real estate and $100 billion in the fund. So really tremendous growth over 10 to 12 years. The team was 16, 17 people. We built out some more capability. So really fortunate to be a part of that growth and, and some great projects along the way, whether it was uh, One York Street, which we uh, were with partnered with Menkes, which is a 2 million square foot mixed use complex with... 800,000 square foot office building being one York and um, two, two condo towers, which were separately uh, managed, known by Menkes and, and their other partner uh, of about 1,300 units and 150,000 feet of retail. And the fun part, there's a lot of fun parts about that transaction from uh, you know two different ownership groups, uh, mixed use, uh, urban development. But also we signed uh, Sun Life as the major anchor tenant. And as part of that deal, they bought a stake in the building at the same time. So you know, negotiating an investment deal and a lease deal with the same party um, was super interesting as well. So lots of complexity, lots of interest, fundamentally a great project and, uh, and a successful outcome which is great. Some challenges along the way, you know, we signed Target for, to prelease the entire retail podium. <laughs> they decided not to occupy after we built the space, uh, which oh was super God. helpful. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, with, uh, with our partners, Menkis was really able to, to create solutions there and ultimately a grocery store, a winners, uh, second city is just open there as well now. So a real cool, uh, spot and, uh, full credit to the Menkes team for delivering an awesome project. Wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty disappointed. We had a we had a target over near me and I was like super excited, but I think like any any person that had gone to Target in the United States and went into the Canadian version was like where is all the cool stuff that we love from the US Targets? Why is none of that stuff here, right? Why are so, the shelves empty? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really yeah. hard to sell stuff and at Hoop, we also had their head
2: office in uh, Aero Corporate Center in the in the Airport Corporate Center. Um, so that was, uh, that was also a fun challenge in terms of suburban office and a big footprint. Now that was, that was a phenomenal building in terms of, uh, newly developed, uh, had sort of all the lead accreditations and just a high quality, uh, office environment. So end ended up being successful outcome, leasing it to point-click care, uh, and Pepsi. But, uh, but that was a bit of a, a bit of a tough one for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's great. You know, that was just, I mean, I, was anyone anticipating that happening or did that catch like absolutely everyone off guard? That was
2: completely, if you sort of look, roll it back, you know, there was a change in leadership at Target and a new CEO came in. And I think management 101 is when you take on a new role, you very quickly figure out what you like and don't like. And you blow out the stuff you don't like very quickly because you can still blame it on the old guy. And so <laughs> the whole Canada experiment was sort of the plug was pulled. They took, I think it was a $5.3 billion write off. but. That was the old guy's, the the old person's uh, mistake, and now yeah. we're starting fresh slate. So wow. it was quite sudden and and, and a surprise. But uh, but yeah, that, that's our those ch- those challenges and opportunities kind of make the the projects fun uh, and differentiated and learning experiences. And who we were able to take that experience in, in our international investing and we were involved in in some really neat sort of repositionings and, and developments in in the UK and in in, um, in, in continental Europe, in the US, etc. And so that that sort of experience in your backyard, real estate is a local business, but there's lessons to be learned. There's there's uh, consistencies. There's uh, elements that are really transferable across markets. Yeah.
1: And how um, how do you ultimately decide what the you know the the portfolio is geographic wise? Is it is it okay? We definitely want to be Europe, 10% United States? Or is it just, hey, whatever good deal comes in and we can see if that fits within our our mandate? Yeah, that's a
2: great question. I had the privilege at Hoop. uh, There's really sort of two phases of my time at Hoop, one under the leadership of Michael Catford and one under the leadership of of Steve Taylor. And Michael Catford was that, that, that sort of ladder of, great real estate mind, great deal maker, really understand the fundamentals, had done every role in in the business and so we really assessed deals and opportunities within the market context, the partnership context and really we were trying to grow the portfolio with great great projects that we can then build a high quality portfolio. When Steve joined, we had a really good portfolio, but we hadn't really applied the portfolio management framework, thinking that you sort of think about as geographic, asset type, risk profile, and taking a broader sort of top-down approach of how do we think about risk? How do we think about markets? How do we think about diversification? And real estate, like unlike the public markets, you can't just change it on a dime. But what we did was sort of build a plan for three years and consistently reassess the plan as the market changed, as our portfolio changes, as, as the competitive landscape changed, but fundamentally moving towards something that we believe would generate the most uh, reliable outcome for the fund around attractive return, but also diversification, stability, income profile, et cetera. But we'd approach it sort of from a tactics perspective, you know, doing the work, like doing the research, looking at the long term trends, looking at the historical performance, looking at volatility and then thinking uh, about some of the macro overlays of, you know, if you start as the world is your oyster, how do you eliminate things? Because you can't do everything all the time. And so we took a view of what was investable? What could we research? Where did we have tax currency Challenges that we could sort of eliminate to narrow the scope, and so that fundamentally meant we started with North America and Western Europe. That's two thirds of the global institutional real estate market. That was plenty to chew on. Huh. Now, now Hoop is taking it to the next level of Asia and so on. But you got to sort of build incrementally because you can't get it all at once in the private markets. It, it takes time. It's built on relationships, individual deals uh, over time.
0: Interesting. interesting. What asset? Like, what asset class did they did, did Hoop first specialize in? So
2: so it was always relatively diversified, but um, I I think we took the most credit for being relatively early in industrial. We always had a big industrial portfolio, and that was really on the back of we thought it was higher yielding. We thought it was less volatile, it was less CapEx. uh, It was kind of easier to understand, like single tenant. And so we built an industrial portfolio relatively early, got into development of industrial relatively early. And and I'll be very quick to point out what we got really late was the residential. Like, so, you know, we don't have, we didn't have a perfect scorecard, but we were late to the residential game for a whole bunch of reasons. But industrial, I think that was the, we were up to sort of 30% industrial, which in the early days, that was considered really unusual from institutional pension fund perspective. Usually you're sort of back then heavily office and retail. Those are the institutional asset classes. Those are the big assets that, um, you know, long-term leases with anchor tenants, whether office or retail, covenants, uh, CBD locations, hard to replace, uh, center of commerce for the consumer, retail, for the for the business, the office. And so those were sort of the pillars of the institutional portfolio from you know, early 2000s to, to 2010, call it. The financial crisis was really the wake-up call for residential, where it was the only positive returning asset class, and that really put it on the radar for institutions. And then industrial with e-commerce, really spiked that, where it transformed from thinking about it as like a manufacturing sort—I of, I don't want to say dirty asset class—but intensive to, you know, e-commerce, large distribution, sort of plugged in, like almost a, you know, transition from retail to to e-commerce as you think about the the distribution of goods. And in the UK, they actually call their their uh, their sort of um, power centers—they call them uh, retail warehouses. So you can sort of like you know, <laughs> see the see how they think about it. It's, it really is a shed. Uh, it's a it's a warehouse with you know some signage on the front and parking out front.
1: Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well. Uh, I guess that's a good segue into uh, into Woodburn uh, uh, in terms of you know the ramping up of of residential. So so I know Woodburn is is definitely like under the radar for a lot of people that uh, that might be listening to this podcast. We get pretty good listenership from you know people in the industry, but even you know students and uh, and people that want to get into the industry. So obviously I've uh, I've known Jason for for ten years or so at, at least, and he uh, and was a one man show and uh, <laughs> kind of out there. Uh, talking about rental when no one else was talking about rental. So so tell us tell us about how you ended up at Woodburn and and what they do and kind of uh, you know, a US-based company in Canada expanding rapidly. Maybe give us the whole whole spiel.
2: Sure. So sure. well, maybe I'll start with Woodburn and then get to sort of how I got involved. Um so it's, it's sort of, uh, you said ramping up quickly, I sort of think of like a overnight, a 20-year overnight success story uh, <laughs> in the sense the business has been around for 20 years, originally an American business. The original founder of the business uh, had a, has had a number of businesses over the years, all real estate related, largely US focused, um, did a mobile park home roll up, IPO'd on the New York Stock Exchange, had an apartment uh, strategy in the US for a while. The last iteration uh, prior to sort of what we are today was a, it was a real estate hedge fund. So really public markets focused. And as, uh, as a sort of uh, origin myth goes, uh, was investing in Canada really as from a US perspective, underrepresented, under-researched, and, and sort of better value. And was spending time in Canada in the early 2000s, and sort of the view was, where are all the new apartments? This is an institutional asset class in the US, it's got institutional capital development uh, for apartment rental. I don't see any apartment rental here. How is this, beat? the demographics are good, he, he uh, met up with Jake Herman, who at the time was an investment banker at uh, either HSBC or Desjardins. I can't remember which one he finished with. Um, but at the time, he was showing him opportunities in the public markets. And, and Jake's got a family uh, history in, in the real estate and apartment business specifically. So was able to sort of explain the dynamics of Canada at the time, which were really, it's a condo market. It's not, for, it's not rental. All the rentals full. All of it's you know, sort of owned by multi-generational families. They were built in the 60s and 70s you really didn't have to do much because they're full all the time. Rent control sort of capped your upside. So really you're sort of managing your expenses lower to create more, more, more value. And, and TJ Hyman, the, the founder of the business and, and Jake basically took the view that new rental was inevitable in Canada as a question of when, and they should raise some capital to do it. So, um, the, again, as the story goes, uh, they went to some of their key investors in, in the hedge fund, were able to raise a pool of capital of basically a private equity fund to invest with a residential opportunistic tag on it in Canada. And then this is sort of 2007, raised 125000000 million-ish. Those investors were, were uh, funny enough, Blackstone, Blackrock, and Fortress. Uh, because wow. they were investors in the hedge fund, the hedge fund was successful. They then leveraged those relationships uh, to start this this pool of capital. In the early days, it was sort of apartments, it was manufactured housing, it was seniors, it was sort of anything with a residential feel to it. So that was fund one. At the time, partnering with operators, developers, really sort of being an investor in that. Sequentially, and then over that time, we've raised uh, sequential private equity funds, each a, a bit bigger. And also over that time, we've grown our capabilities where we continue to invest with developers. We also partner with developers, and from a development uh, perspective, we also built out a management platform called Rhapsody and bring that to the table. And then we'll, we have the capability to do it ourselves as well. And really the view is we're an investor first, but we have these different capabilities within the firm to execute depending on what the situation is. So really we're looking for the best investment outcome. And the way I think about it is these are tools in the toolbox. We can partner with a developer. We can bring... If it's a, a great builder or a condo developer and they don't have the management platform and they need the sort of the rental expertise, we've got that. Or we can do it our own, You know, situational dependent. So we're active across Canada. Multifamily is probably our biggest uh, vertical, but we're also one of the largest investors and managers of student housing, as well as uh, with our partner, seniors housing as well. And then within our opportunity fund, we have the opportunity to, to, to invest in anything that sort of fits the return profile. So within that, we've, we've done a little bit of self-storage development. And a little bit of small bay industrial as well, so we've got some flexibility. But the theme is Woodbourne is a, a private equity, real uh, residential real estate investor, developer, manager across the spectrum. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Is the is the focus more on the multifamily side, or do you like when you're looking at a site, are you are you looking objectively at also like condo potential, or is it is it more? So
2: we, traditionally, no, we have not been a condo developer. Mainly, like it hasn't been our skillset and expertise. Like we've got now a 17 year track record in apartments. And so that's really our go-to because we understand it well, we can underwrite it well, we understand how you lease it up, we understand how you manage it, we understand the expense ratios really well. We've now, as we've grown, got involved in some larger sites that either are too large just for rental in the sense of it's too much absorption for rental, or it just makes sense to have mixed tenure between ownership and rental. And so we've now uh, added that to the mix. but. I would say that's only as part of a bigger project. We, we still want rental to be the lead element because that's sort of what we know best and that's where we can add value and also manage risk best as opposed to, um, there's lots of really sharp condo investor developers and, and we just haven't done enough I would say to be sort of competitive or, or have an edge in that space. But in a bigger project where you need a rental component and it makes sense to have condo, that's that's sort of ideal where we can, we can sort of partner and, and lever our expertise in that regard.
1: Interesting, interesting. I mean, probably about 15 years ago, I, I did. I worked on a study for uh, when I was working in a company called Clayton Research with uh, CMHC, and they were trying to understand why there wasn't more rental development in Canada, right? And so I'm, I'm calling, you know, rental apartment developers across the country, and, you know, you go up to Halifax, and the, you know, the guy is a, a land developer, and he builds it, and he owns it, and that's the only way they could possibly make it work because the rents were... <laughs> You know, at that time, a dollar a square foot and 85 cents a square foot, right? And then, you know, once you got into discussions with the Toronto developers, it was. You know, there's just too many condos. There's too many condos, and they're all being rented out, and and the amount of condo stocks going up and up and up. So those investor-owned condos are are, you know, taking over the the rental market. And it really probably wasn't until 2015 when everyone was. You know, I mean, the newspaper back then, when people read the newspaper every day, it was constantly oversupply, oversupply, oversupply. All these investor condo units. All there, and then we had a record, something like 27,000, 30,000 units came to completion. Rents were a little bit flat, but then we went into 16, 17, 18, 19, where you know the market was lagged from slower pre-construction sales. So rents just went through the roof, and I think there was a realization of uh, of the people want a more quality. Apartment experience. They don't want the unit to be sold out from under them. So, so I guess the question, after all that, is what's kind of the thesis? Are you worried about the condo investor market? Are you are you just you know saying to yourself affordability is getting worse? We're going to target that long term renter. We're going to target that move down empty nester. We're going to uh, um, you know take advantage of of uh, a lack of supply in the marketplace you know, is it, I'm sure it's probably a combination of all, but maybe, you know, is there a, this grand philosophy about rental and, in the GTA? Yeah, great
2: question. So maybe just rewind back. I think you, you touched on a really good point about like why it wasn't happening before and what made it start happening. And, and for that, you need to understand, and I know you've got a really uh, educated uh, listener base. So so I'm, I'm sure I'm just repeating things that people already know, but you have to understand like what the condo financial model is and, rewind the clock a little bit. Like, so the way it works in Canada, obviously, is you have to pre-sell most of the building to get qualified financing. So that actually keeps actually a constraint on people building speculative condos and really a boom buy cycle, which you see a lot more in the US. What that also does um, is it de-risk your revenue side, where right? you've got your revenues locked in. And especially in an environment where costs were relatively stable, that really helped you then de-risk layer on the fact that there's no refinancing risk on the completion of the building because you're, you've sold it. You essentially pre-sold it. So there's no worry about the exit financing. You'll able to get really good financing up front from a loan to value or loan to cost perspective. On top of that, you're taking deposits which then can be insured and used as part of your equity stack. So you've de-risked the revenue. You've de-risked the financing from a, from a takeout perspective. Um, You've got less equity in because you've got sort of your deposits subsidizing your equity stack. You got very little equity or less equity, I should say. In you've got fixed profit. You're in a stable construction cost environment. It is really profitable. It is very and and you've you've seen the proliferation because like just follow the money, right? Like it's been really profitable, and rental just couldn't compete with that. What's changed? And I don't think it was the oversupply per se that that changed. I think part of it was just like a psychological shift. Of for the longest time, the view was you can get more than three dollars a foot in rent. And at the time, cap rates were were higher. And so the higher cap rates, you know, divided by the, the lower rent, you didn't it didn't make sense from a valuation perspective. I think it's a little bit of the chicken and the egg. Like nothing was worth more than $3 a foot, right? Nobody was building anything that was worth more. So you didn't have the evidence. And the institutional you need an institutional investor to invest in the projects because of the higher equity requirement. You couldn't, it wasn't 10%, it was 30% you had to raise. Then you had to get a bank to give you a loan, and you had to provide a significant balance sheet because they had to refinance out at the end because you weren't necessarily selling it. Mm-hmm. So you need the institutional investor and the institutional investor needs data and needs research and, needs, and it didn't exist. And so you had this like issue of like, there wasn't enough research and data points to show that it was worthwhile doing, then nothing was done. And, and it becomes this, this virtual uh, this uh, vicious circle. What happened then, I think you saw rents continue to climb the fundamentals in Toronto continue to be impressive as it raised to low vacancy rates, the lease up, Condo rents were going up. Um, it is the, the proxy for rental supply because there wasn't any meaningful rental development. So, so now you got the conditions where cap rates are coming down, cost of borrowing is coming down. Institutional investors, as I mentioned earlier, the financial crisis highlighted the return profile possible. In you got diversified tenant base. A terrible year in occupancy is 90%. Office buildings are zero. Industrial buildings are like zero the cost of holding an office building empty is costing you 30 bucks a foot because between property taxes and op costs and, and, and so on. So residential sort of all of a sudden for stability, look good from a finance ability with CMHC started to look good. You started to see the condo rents, the quality of condos has also increased and you're starting to see higher rents in those units. It was justified higher rents on your pro forma. So all these things came together where now all of a sudden uh, rental starts to make sense. So Woodbourne did their first rental project development in 2012. So maybe a little bit leading that 2015 timeline, but it was just a big part of it was based on its views from seeing what's happened in the US. And just the growth in rents. The other element here is we're very conservative so when we think about growth. Like anything more than two and a half percent, and you get heart palpitations, especially, <laughs> especially in the institutional world, where again it's very data driven. And you know, if you really take the theoretical approach, it, it sort of always has to tie back to inflation. And inflation was low, so how does something grow faster than inflation for a long period of time? It's hard to reconcile that. The answer is the supply and demand dynamics of the micro level support it. In terms of vacancy is tight and more people are coming, and therefore supply and demand means rents should go up. So woodburn has got an overall thesis around uh, the rental fundamentals being exceptionally good. The current fundamentals are one, 2% vacancy, like essentially close to zero. Um, you got the you got the population growth story, which was a real story before
1: COVID. When we were bringing three hundred thousand people, <laughs> now we're at five hundred thousand people. Yeah. Like yeah, over the last year, it obviously some of it is 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 related to there being a period of non but uh, of of no immigration. But it was eight hundred and sixty five thousand yeah. over the last year.
2: <laughs> so the so demand side is compelling, and then just importantly, the supply side. So thirty thousand units on an absolute basis, that sounds like a lot, but on a relative basis, it's flat over the last 10 years, and the population is growing. So as a percentage of inventory, we're actually going down in terms of new supply. We also know between the Greenbelt and notwithstanding recent news is a constraint on growth. But the biggest constraint, in my opinion, and people complain about zoning, and, and that is an issue, the biggest constraint is just the labor force. There physically are not enough people to build more units. So even if more units get approved, even if we finance them, both hard things to do in this environment. There still isn't the people to build them, so that's a that's a structural issue that I hope we solve. But that's a multi year problem to solve. So you got demand side, supply side, and the market today is tight. So you make the argument today: supply is not flat; it's it's down. And and we really actually think about from a rental perspective, we actually think about the housing uh, sector in as holistically because our main competition generally isn't actually other rental. It's the buying a condo or choosing homeownership. And so right now we're at an all-time wide gap of cost of renting versus homeownership. Even if house prices come off a little bit, the tripling of mortgage rates plus property taxes plus utilities, et cetera, is the widest gap it's ever been. And so new housing as a total uh, numerator, if you think about it that way, has gone down arguably 20 or 30%, probably more, but like say conservatively 30%. Back half of last year, first half of this year with the lack of condo starts, if you're delivering, our view is if you're delivering something in three to four years from now, you're going to be in even tighter circumstances because we're still having more people come. And if everyone starts pushing the go button, condo developers as well, over the next 12 months, it's not like there's going to be a bubble of new supply. It's just going to be deferred out because the ability to deliver those units is really, you know uh is really constrained by the by the labor force you can't just double the labor force to deliver more units so from a woodborne perspective we view sort of a structural supply and demand imbalance you know growth is going to be elevated we believe for for a significant period of time we could debate what that means is that very high high or medium high but directionally we think it's going going a certain way and that another big question today is valuation you know in today's uh, sort of investable universe you really want to be in a space where there is growth, there's income growth, and so again, how you choose to value that growth, you may differ, but fundamentally, you want to be somewhere where there is growth, whether it's to offset inflation or just protect yourself from a valuation perspective to grow your way out of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You, you touched on the on the on the financing side and the capital stack on the multifamily versus condo. Um, you know, when your goals and your your objective, obviously, to to drive returns for your fund. Do you look at like how do you look at financing these products? Like, do you lean into CMHC, or is that because it's you I know mean, you're not putting out a ton of funds? Is it not as beneficial for your fund?
2: Yeah, good, great question. So fundamentally, we're trying to solve for a return a return and risk equation, and so we have a return target within our fund, which you know we're taking development risk. We we want to earn a return that's that's fair for that. But our view is we're also trying to de-risk it once we can hit that level of return. So we'll we'll lean into it to the extent we can generate our returns but we're highly sensitive, you know, leverage is a double-edged sword, right? Like it adds volatility to the upside and the downside. So it's not all, take all the leverage possible, regardless of it just adds return. Our view is add the appropriate level of leverage to try and get to your return profile. But then at that point, cap it because you're, you're adding a volatility and are, we, we really want to focus on the asset performance. So between the development value, you're able to create by, you know, taking a piece of dirt and putting sweat equity, financial equity, Time uh, execution risk into, and then actually the ownership like our we're structured that we can hold an asset for several years afterwards because there's a lot of value to be gained through managing the lease up, managing through stabilization and beyond to create sort of that that income stream that's really attractive and create a brand in the market and you know have tenants want to be in your buildings because it's a it's a great building with great service.
1: I have a question, and, and it's it's. <laughs> it's like i don't know, even know myself but i probably should so you have you know these 5 and 10 year funds but real estate, obviously, it's 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 you can't control when some of these projects are going to be completed. How do you end up uh, paying out these funds when maybe your projects are running six, yeah. ten, five yeah, years that's, longer than yeah. anticipated? No, so that's a
2: great question and highly relevant in real estate, which fundamentally is a slow-moving business. Like nothing happens overnight, right? But you got every day move it along, otherwise you'll never get there. So our funds are structured uh, consciously to be ten-year funds. So we've got a 10-year window to, to get the job done, so to speak. Then we think about what our investment strategy is. So our view is we're we're not best placed to take zoning risk. It's not our expertise. It's also, from a timing perspective, probably the widest variable in terms of two-year rezoning turns into a four-year rezoning or, or longer, potentially. There's some horror stories out there from much longer. So our view is... We really want to be engaging when either zoning is achieved or within arm's reach. And it's more maybe a procedural element to get there. But what we're able to do there is really pinpoint the starting point of construction, which then really puts a definite timeline on your, because it usually is not a question being late on construction. Or if it is, we're talking about a matter of months. It's the zoning pre-dev work that really uh, elongates it. So our our strategy really focuses on Either ready to go land or very close to ready to go land, where we can really narrow that window because the other risk in the last several years for sure is escalation of construction costs, right? Like the hard cost index is running at you know 16, 17, 18 percent annualized. The longer your duration, if you had a two years zoning period, and especially if you're in the condo game, we can sort of circle back again why condos may be riskier today than it has been. You know, if you pre sell at a certain price and your costs escalate beyond that, that's that's a cha- challenging financial equation. Whereas On our side, we try and narrow the timing, both from a duration perspective, but also how soon can we tender fixed costs and fix our costs to eliminate that risk. If we're taking a two-year view before we're starting construction, the range of possible outcomes is a lot wider. So try and narrow that. Get your start Play and the projects we're involving getting larger and larger so we're talking about three four five years to stabilization because we're building three four five six hundred unit buildings takes longer to build the hole in the ground is bigger the lease up is longer so we want to afford ourselves that time to have the flexibility to deliver lease up stabilize and then have sort of optimal timing where it's not a matter of months left before you have to return the capital, but you've got the flexibility to really maximize return for your investors.
1: Interesting. Interesting. It's 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 a fascinating part of the business that people just can, doesn't get talked about a lot, right? It's just like, we have a fund and therefore we're, you know, yeah. and then we just uh, always to like take that for granted, right? I'm like, like, okay, <laughs> you got a fund, great.
2: <laughs> people ask me about well, pension funds or Hoop. And, and it's important to know, like everyone's different within the context of that framework, right? So Hoop is different than necessarily all the other, uh, all the other pension funds. But similarly, every fund is a bit different too, right? The return target, their capabilities, their duration, all these things, who their backers are, um, their ability to sort of, we we're able. We were fortunate to raise a, a significant pool of capital, so that it gives us a lot of flexibility. Where we've got a number of projects, and so it gives us a bit more diversification. It gives us more access to sort of create a pool to to invest and have that flexibility. When if something doesn't go exactly according to plan, which it doesn't, like it's development, like uh, it's not twenty out of twenty uh, success stories. There's there's some there's some challenges. There always are because inherently there's risk.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I, you're involved obviously in, in the, in the lease up at, at the well for the residential units there. It was so kind of a two part question. One, you know, how are things going on the lease up there? And two, how do you view the lease up process? Right? Like, I feel like you need an algorithm to decide, like if I, I've had some people say, well, I leased up my building in two months. And then I'm like, well, Maybe you should have had higher rents, right? Instead of leasing it up that quickly, right? Versus, um, you know, maybe taking too long. And then you've got your units competing against units that people are leaving from a one year lease. So I'm always kind of interested how, uh, you know, a property manager goes about setting the rents to get the optimal lease up to maximize the revenue over that that period. Great, great question, and I think I've already warned you about compound questions. So, (laughs) let me
2: answer the first question first. Uh, How's the well leasing going? Great, but the second part of your question I think is really interesting. And from a Woodbourne perspective, we think we've got a really compelling management platform, and and everyone, everyone's biased. We all think our platforms are the best, but let's I'll, I'll say differentiated. Rhapsody was specifically built to manage new buildings in Canada and really leveraging U.S. management practices, where in that space, they've been building buildings for a long time. A big chunk of our management team is from the U.S. In fact, some are still based in the U.S. We have a a, a Colorado office um, where some of them are based. But the principles around uh, delivering service, running a lease up, um, dynamic pricing, marketing, These are relatively new concepts in the Canadian landscape. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of the legacy managers have been managing rent control buildings for a very long time. And and that's that's just a different operating model, both organizationally and and personnel wise. So what makes it different is we use a a piece of software called Yieldstar, which is, you know, table stakes in the US, but relatively unique in Canada, where effectively it uh, prices every single unit Every vacant unit every day, based on a number of attributes, whether it's uh, where it is in the building, how close to the elevator, the size, the unit type, uh, where it is in the stack, et cetera. And really to optimize NOI, which is different than maximizing occupancy. So we're trading and then we're repricing every day. And because we can, in, in Ontario at least, we can, uh, on renewals, set a new rent. We are able to dynamically price to optimize for that. And so it is using, and then our asset managers are, are, are monitoring it and making decisions along the way, but it's backed by that software, which is effectively an AI tool to support that. Now the lease up process itself is a bit art and a bit science and Rhapsody now in Canada in the last six, seven years, I think they've done it's 17 or 18 lease ups across the country, which we think is, uh, I don't know, definitively, but I think that's sort of a, a market leader in terms of number of, 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 of buildings leased up. And what, some of the elements there are, you know, you'll have a development portfolio, you'll have an average rent and you have a valuation based on it and an IRR and whether it's refinancing or sell, a lot of developers hyper focus on hitting that number. And so they'll start trying to lease at that number and, and build momentum. What you really, our view is you got to start below that and create momentum and create tension. You don't have pricing tension when you've got 100% of availability. So, you, And then week by week, you're know, by you know, you're monitoring and you're monitoring what you have available and you're constantly tweaking you want to build that momentum And then, really, you got strong pricing power, sort of 70, 80, 85%, where then you're sort of really getting to where you want to be and and hopefully above that to then average out at your number. But then it takes a year or two, really, then to optimize that on why because of that process. And so, you know, it's a bit of a nuanced approach. Um, And to your point about renewals, you really want to get the bulk of that leasing done the first year. Right, so you're on you're on the clock to deliver that because then you're into your renewal cycle and then you're competing with your, your renewals. And it, it varies pr- province by province and, and, and so on because like in, in BC, there's there's rent control as soon as you're done the building and you take occupancy. And in, in, in Quebec, you get a five-year window of no rent control, then rent control kicks in. In Ontario, we've got no rent control on, on new buildings. So we vary our strategy province by province and also just the local market dynamics and the size of the building and where it sits in its competitive scale. All these elements, play a factor. Um, but fundamentally, like it is an expertise. You don't just snap your fingers and doing it like Rhapsody's, I don't know, 160 people. And we're leveraging our portfolio in the market. We're, we're looking at real-time data. We're using the algorithm, et cetera, to really maximize performance.
0: Um, Taking it back to to the well, um, with regards to well, it's such a dynamic, it's an amazing project, one of the biggest in the in the city right now. Um, I wonder if you can comment on on how you guys got involved, and also what it's like. Yeah, you're working with such a dynamic group. You've got Rio Can, you know, I guess the kings of of retail. You've got Allied specializing in brick and beam, um, and also Diamond Corp is the Diamond Corp. other Tri- one. Trydel's doing, the, yeah, doing the, well. the 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 condo, so. Yeah. Yeah. So,
2: so I'll rewind the clock a little bit and I've got sort of an inside outside view. It it was before my time at Woodbourne, but uh, it was obviously a very well known transaction in the market. And so I I sort of had a view uh, from Hoop and then obviously being on the inside now I can, I can sort of uh, share some of that perspective. But um, Rio and Allied and Diamond Corp bought the site from the Globe Mail. Uh, It required a substantial rezoning. They, they did that. That was a a multi-year process. I should know the exact time, I would call it multiple years, three, two, three, four years. Someone can correct me for sure on that. And they achieved the density, the, they achieved the the, the the permitted uses they wanted. And at that time, Diamond Corp, uh, and I don't know intimately their business model today, but I think back then they were a bit more focused on sort of the rezoning entitlement work, and that's sort of their, their main value. At that time, they wanted to exit because they weren't didn't want to participate in the development and Rio and Ally being commercial uh, landlords, retail and, and office obviously, there was substantial residential density so they wanted to bring on a, a residential partner to help build out the whole site. So a formal RFP broker process was, was run. That What made it really interesting is until that point, uh, whenever a REIT was selling density, they would typically sell highest bid wins. Condo, you know, frankly, always wins. Like usually there's a 20, 25% margin on a like-for-like basis between condo and rental. I'm, there's a benchmark. The difference in that process was Rio Can and Ally decided they wanted rental to be part of the, the, the package because they're going to own the commercial, the, the retail and the office long term, they felt to make that an integrated community and sustainable. They didn't want just a for sale community. they wanted a rental community and a for sale for a dynamic mixed, truly mixed use long-term sustainable project. By putting that requirement on, all of a sudden Woodbourne, who'd been an advocate for for rental and we've been sort of working with the REITs to convince them that instead of selling for a one-time pop on profits on selling a condo site to a developer, Instead, develop rental, take a little less upfront profit, but then own a durable income stream that the public markets are gonna reward you for for many, many years. That sort of fell, you know, that that wasn't sort of an easy message to receive. I think the well sort of signified a bit of a turn in that mindset. At that point, then all of a sudden, Woodbourne had a real opportunity because we had some track record, because we were sort of advocates for it. We partnered with Tridel, obviously, you know, a best in class condo developer, long history, where essentially we bid it together. And then we allocated the space 50-50 condo rental. Ultimately, of the rental, Rio Can came in for 50%. Uh, the rental's three buildings, one tall tower and two mid-rise buildings fronting on Wellington. Rio Can, came in, Rio Can came in for 50% of the tall tower. So we're 100%, Woodbourne's 100% of the two mid-rises fronting Wellington and 50-50 with Rio Can on the, the taller rental tower. But that really then opened the door for us to participate and be competitive because of that requirement. And that's sort of, I, it still holds true today. Like if a, if, a, if a site comes up for sale, that's residentially zoned in, in, in most places in Canada, there's no distinction between for sale and rental. And back to the business model, like it's just more profitable to develop condo. So they, that, that buyer has a, either a lower cost of capital or a higher profitability and they win that bid. What's starting to change a little bit is some of the landowners are making the decision that they're taking a longer-term view of profits, because a one-time profit bump versus compounding over many years uh, can be very profitable, but you have to take a, a longer-term view on it. And then municipalities are getting a bit smarter about creating these mixed-tenure uh, mixed tenure sort of neighborhoods and communities. And one example that's off the cuff is in Vancouver. They have created a new, um, it's called Secure Rental Policy, but SRP for short, where it is, if you if you're building rental, you get fast tracked on the zoning. So all of a sudden, now it's not apples to oranges competing. Now it's sort of like, oh, there's an advantage to having an inclusionary zoning, even you're seeing a little bit where the requirements on affordable are different for for sale versus for rental. And so they're starting to even the playing field a little bit, which is from a Woodborne perspective, we think that's really positive because in the long run, and we think we need those mixed tenure communities to really be successful long-term. And your earlier point about, yes, a lot of condos are rental, but it's a different animal when you have a professionally managed building, when you've got security of tenure. And, and frankly, your earlier questions, what I never answered was, we're happy to compete with condo renters all day. Love that. Like, our, we view our real competition as someone making the choice of renting versus home ownership, which is like fundamentally a different option, but a substitute. Whereas if someone's uh, comparing, contrasting our rental property versus a, a one-off condo unit with a, a mom and pop landlord, we're happy to take that comparison all day, and we'll we'll win our fair share based on service quality, security of tenure, quality of the amenities, uh, a whole bunch of those types of factors. So, um, yeah, that that the well we think was it was a definitive deal for for Woodward. We're an under the radar company in general, notwithstanding. I don't know. We've got five or six thousand uh, new built multifamily units in Canada. We've got one of the top two, three largest student housing portfolios in Canada with 5,000 beds. We've invested in, I don't know, 23 24,000 apartments over the last 15 years. But we've always, we've partnered with people. We've been in the residential space, which until recently was, was actually, you know, the fourth asset class on the institutional radar. But the well was a turning point, both I think for the rental sector and for Woodbourne. Um, and then also we, we've grown uh, from in terms of our capital raising and our involvement in the number of projects we're, we're involved in. Interesting,
1: interesting. So, so prior to pandemic, so obviously prior to you being at, at Woodbourne, I gave a gave a presentation to a number of your your investors at uh, at a real estate event, and I was. I was actually really impressed by the quality of the questions that were being asked. Right, you know, I'm going through some some pretty in-depth data that uh, that someone might that might only be an investor in a project, as opposed to someone that's that's operating in it might not, you know, have the full the full goods on. So, but the the question really is. How much, you know, are you getting in front of those investors today and, and what are they, what's their number one question? What are they asking you? Like, Hey, you know, about, about your business and and about the market.
2: Yeah. Great question. So I mentioned a little bit earlier, like our original capital base was, was very U S centric because the company was American. That's where our investors were coming from in the previous iterations of Woodborne. So we've always had a heavy, uh, capital raising element in, in the U S more recently, we've been raising a lot more capital in Europe and, um, and ironically, the least number, but a growing number in Canada. Like ironically, like in Canada, we again under the radar. Not everyone knows us, uh, and we've had really strong investor support globally. So we haven't had to really, we don't really wave the flag around and, and market a lot. Um, we're trying to do maybe a little bit more of that now. But um, that investor base is, is all institutional. It's it's in, it's uh, pension plans. It's university endowments. It's fund of funds. It's you know global investors, and so we're We're blessed in that they've done their diligence. they They, they put us through uh, a heck of a operational due diligence, and so on. But they actually add value to our program in that we're able to tap into them globally around what they're seeing, what they're seeing in Europe, what they're seeing in the US, how that compares and contrasts. and And frankly, that's that's a little bit my story about why i I joined Woodborn is when I was uh, investing on behalf of Hoop, investing in Europe and Canada, the US, and across asset classes. The more I saw around the world, the more convinced I became both residential, is such an attractive long-term asset class, and more importantly, Canada is such an amazing market environment. As Canadians, we're, I think, uh, conservative by nature, and a little bit the grass is greener, the U.S. is faster paced, higher cap rates, higher returns, but we don't appreciate how good the fundamentals are here. And we underestimate what's possible. And and I had the I had the 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 privilege of investing on behalf of Hoop. I got to see it. I got to see residential in Europe. I got to see residential in the U.S. Got to see office, retail, industrial, and that basically built my self conviction that this is where I want to dedicate my time, my professional time, my, my capital, uh, such that it is uh, in this space because the fundamentals are that good. And then it, it's a question of how do you execute and. Um, Again, I had the benefit at, at Hoop. Part of my role was evaluating managers and partners, and, and picking groups to work with, and working with them to invest. And so I got to apply that same process to the Canadian landscape. And, and, and needless to say, uh, either Woodbourne passed, or they were the only one that said yes. But um, either way, uh, I, I became highly convinced of their ability to execute in this market that is just fundamentally structurally so attractive.
0: Interesting. Interesting. I'd love to uh, to hear a little bit about how, like you know, you guys launch a fund. How does your capital raise go? Is it a lot of the same players that you've seen in your previous funds? Like, and then it's just, you know, it's it's just filling it up from there. I guess just just comment a little on that.
2: Again, it's one of those sort of like uh, long-term overnight success stories where it's it's hard in the early days. And again, I wasn't here in the early days, but I've been on the flip side of investing in first-time funds and you build a track record. But it's really hard to get that institutional buy-in because the process, is the reporting, the back office required, the scrutiny is at a different level. So Woodbourne, we're now on our our fifth institutional fund Uh, again over 15 years. We've raised now the firm sort of manages call it two and a half billion of equity across those funds. Um, We don't really count calculate what gross asset value or development value is, but like you know, if we're using two thirds leverage, we're sort of our portfolio six seven eight billion something like that. but as you raise sequentially more and you build your track record, and obviously the big caveat is it's got to be a good track record, it does then attract both reinvestment and also new investors. So on in our most recent fund, we were very uh, very privileged that uh, the, the re-up rate and the, the rate of institutional investors coming back follow-on you know, was extremely high. And so every fund we look to add some new investors just from a diversification perspective as well as more uh, input for us on, on what, the, what the rider world looks like. But a huge segment is is reinvestment of of existing partners, and some of them being with us since Fund One and grown alongside us. Um, Probably the most interesting, just in terms of where your question is going, I think like today for us, Europe is a pretty interesting place where Europeans love residential; they they see the value, but. Because the built form in Europe being most of the major cities are developed and there's huge zoning restrictions in in most places like London, Paris, Berlin, et cetera, you can't develop skyscrapers. Like they come to North America like, holy crap, look at the size of these buildings. You can't do that over there. Also, opportunity to build new. We're able to add uh, sustainability features that are just not available in existing buildings. So that is really attractive. It's it's part of our DNA. It's not something we really advertise, but the sustainability elements, what, what we can do both from a building performance perspective, but also the nice thing about residential really integrates into the community. Like an office building, you can have a high performance environmental, but it's hard to really integrate as much into the community, whereas an, a residential building can do more of that. So they're really attracted to that. And then they can understand the fundamentals really well of Canada. Canada a relatively easy story to understand. It's a few key cities. It's easy to understand the immigration story. It's easy to understand the zoning restrictions on a few Cities like the challenge with the U.S. That's actually almost too big. You've got fifty cities of a million people, all moving at different speeds. Highly mobile population base where someone goes grows up in California, goes to school in Chicago, meets somebody in Florida, gets a new job in New York. No hesitation in moving here. You, like you lose your job, you just wait. You like, nobody, nobody, actually moves, or you just move to the bigger cities. <laughs> um, and then also like the zone, like in most places in the U.S., like there is no zoning. You know, you just you know you own a ten-year-old apartment building in Phoenix or or, or Dallas or, or Florida. You're like third generation at that point. Like uh, you're the old guy. Yeah. Uh, whereas here, we hit 30, 40 years old. It's like, maybe it's time for a paint job, right? Like, uh, so there's a there's a, there's a a real uh, supply and demand imbalance ba- here. That's easy to understand as a fundamental investor and a long-term investor. So that's that's hugely positive.
0: What markets are you guys interested in, in the United States right now?
2: So we're only Canada. So oh, I thought you were looking at the United no, States. So, so uh, <sighs> like at my previous role at Hoop, uh, uh, investing across the U.S., Woodbourne, a, sort of in previous iterations would be investing in the US, but over the last twenty years we've really become a Canadian business. Um, we still have an office in the US because we've got key people there. We're able to also tap into the talent pool in the US because having a US it's one thing to work in Canada, it's another thing to like move your life and, you know, credit and mortgages and, and, and so on. But living in the US and working in Canada is really just a travel thing. And lots of people travel for work and you know again when I was at hoop, I'd be traveling all over the place for, for investing. So similar but that gives us a bit of an advantage of a wider talent pool and all of, and a wider expertise that specifically in residential rental
1: that's interesting it's interesting so I used to live in Dallas I graduated university and and worked my first job in real estate and traveled around and yeah it's such a different market it's just sprawl to the max right and so many of these cities are that way they just Build another ring road and build out, and they build small offices around these giant ring roads. So very different than are completely constrained by, you know, Lake Ontario, Greenbelt, uh, the impossibility of commuting on on the roads from <laughs> some of these other cities, and uh, and uh, kind of the pain in the butt of of being on our our transit system as well. Just you know, really concentrates things uh, downtown, but. From your perspective of traveling a little bit, how do how do how do Toronto um, residential buildings stack up against the U.S. Are we are we getting there in terms of uh, in terms of because they always seem to be ahead of the curve because they've built so many more multifamily uh, buildings. How are how, how are we stacking up now in, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, so so great great question. I think uh, the two answers I would give is we're catching catching up fast. Like you know, bearing in mind there are no twelve year old buildings in Canada right? They're either under 10 years old or 40 years old, right? So like <laughs> considering we've only been building for like eight to 10 years, really five years, like uh, if you look at sort of who's got the new build experience, again, we, our first one was 2012 and most other groups started in 15, 16, 17. So there's not much that's been delivered yet in, in a practical sense. And I mentioned earlier, I think we've done 17 or 18 lease ups. Like that, that, that's a significant proportion. So with that in mind, the buildings we're building, I think are very high quality, the, the sustainability elements that we're building to are are leading edge in that regard. The difference I think today still remains like places like New York or London or Paris, when land value is three, four, five, six hundred dollars a foot, and build costs are three, four, five, six hundred dollars a foot in local currency adjusted. You've got to build something spectacular, yep. like you to generate that rent, that sale value. You've got to be at a different level, and so we don't we're not there yet. Um, But it's also a function like there's so many of those more markets, a wider range, the stuff we're building in Canada, I would say is better than a vast majority of the stuff in the US, but there's still pockets where it's at a different level because you're able to achieve those higher rents and those higher sale values that are just not, we're not there yet today, like yeah, the average rent in, in New York six dollars a foot and like five thousand bucks gross, right? Like that. We're not at that from an average perspective, but everything costs more, right? So so that's I think a bit of the trade-off. But when I think about the quality of the design, the qual the, the level of sustainability, the certifications we're able to achieve and we're targeting, we are we are very advanced there. And partly because I think both regulatory and our institutional investor base is saying we want these and we believe it's we have to do it to I hate to use the word future-proof because you can't proof the future, but more about to have a highly uh, compelling, attractive asset in the future, it's got to be a high-performance sustainability asset. And that's firmly established in the commercial space where you're not going to buy something that doesn't qualify for LEED as an office building. And, and RBC or TD is not going to lease something that's not you know LEED certified. We're not there yet in residential, but certainly Woodbourne's view is we're going that way. And these are long-duration assets. So if I'm not building it today and delivering it in three or four or five years, then I'm, I might have a stranded asset or at least not able to maximize value and maximize performance, which we have a both a fiduciary obligation for our investors, but also it's the right thing to do. And that nicely pairs up.
0: So when you when you look at like each building and the, the quality of build, like how much you're going to spend on construction, how much you're going to spend in like an amenity space, how much you're going to spend in the lobby, does that vary? I guess by fund, by building, by location. Like how do you weigh that out when you're looking at a, a potential build?
2: Yeah, it, it's uh, it's the 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 criteria is really around the location and who your customer is. Like we start off with who's the customer for this building and what are we delivering for them? And that then speaks to design, amenity package, rent, expectation, et cetera. And it's gotta be a package deal of understanding. So there's a big difference between the building that we've got in Liberty Village and a building we're, we're building in suburban Montreal, where it's maybe a bit more cheap and cheerful, good value, clean, you know, high quality, but not a ton of amenities, not the highest level of finishes because it's priced appropriately for that market where it's an attractive value proposition versus downtown Toronto, where you wanna achieve higher rents, you're competing with condos, you're competing with other new, new rental developments, you gotta drive a higher standard. So, First and foremost, it's it's the customer and and the, what you're trying to achieve at the project level. Then out of that fall, falls return. Like I, I think it's sort of backwards. I think what's the return you're seeking, and then try and make the project work to that return. It's what, what can the project return, and then does it fit for our, for our capital? Because otherwise, it's a bit of a square peg in a round hole, or you just need things to be true that aren't, uh, or, or or too big a leap of faith. So to me, it always starts with the customer, and you know, from a career perspective even though I did office leasing for, you know, a nanosecond and it wasn't for me, the one thing I took away from that and it sort of served me well on the commercial side, but I still hold true today is real estate is is a service. It is is servicing either servicing a tenant in any regard and a tenant want to be there. Right. And that to me is the key value proposition. If a tenant wants to be there and wants to be there in the future, you got a great asset. Uh, it, and that speaks to location, speaks to design, speaks to management, all those things. If the answer is no, like doesn't matter how you design it, doesn't matter you know where it's located, if the tenants don't want to be there. And so asking, like to me, I've always, I always sort of started with that fundamental question: Does a tenant want to be here? Because like you're building the building in service of that, right? It's it's not like a beautiful building will lose a ton of money if the tenants don't want to be there. And um, I don't know, actually know if this building did lose money or not, but like I think of the Gherkin in London, which is sort of like the, the rounds sort or of pickle shaped uh, building. And you walk it, it's like a round floor plate for an office building.
1: It's like <laughs>
2: not good. <Yeah. laughs> it's like really hard to have an office there, really hard to sort of plan, et cetera. And so, you know, starting first with like, can you know does are you building something a tenant wants and whether the tenant wants it or knows it or not is a different question but in the future you know is it something they want to be in because if the answer is yes that goes a long way to creating a good value proposition
1: Interesting. well we're getting close to our our time with you but i would uh, be remiss if i didn't ask an interest rate question so you know you're starting construction in in one environment you got your construction loan is are you arranging the permanent financing at a certain rate at 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 the future, or are you just to the wind for what this you know this 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 permanent financing will be at the the project? How does maybe give us a little bit of an explanation how that how yeah, the whole process it's works? It's a good
2: question. So you have got some options there in terms of uh, using swaps derivatives to sort of hedge that that risk. I would say in large part, like we're pricing off the forward curve. So we're, we're thinking about like the duration of the time we're going to have that construction financing outstanding. And we're thinking about what that forward interest rate curve looks like and underwriting on that basis and obviously creating some margin and so on. But generally we're letting it float with a view that um, we're, we're seeing an increasing rental environment as well. and so. And then carrying the budget uh, to support that as it relates to um, you know uh, reserves and, and so on. But really taking a view, we're, we've got a diversified portfolio in all of our funds. And so it's really, we're able to sort of mitigate that risk somewhat by having a variety of projects at different stages. And so uh, the cost of hedging that, especially in a volatile market, can be really expensive. And so... Listen, these, these, it's hard to get these deals done. Like, is there's no slam dunks, and so you're sort of scratching, clawing for as much return as you can to make it viable. Um, so we're we're always looking at the trade off, but generally we're taking the view between uh, pricing in enough contingency, looking at the forward curve, having the reserves, and looking considering a diversified portfolio that will 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 be open to that risk.
1: Interesting, interesting. Well, we, at, at the end of each show, we have what's called the rapid fire section. So we hit you with uh, 10 quick questions. They're really looking for, you know, one, two, three, five, 10 word maximum responses to it. So I I think a few guests have blown through that, uh, that maximum. Yeah. yeah. So I'm glad (laughs) you see you you listen to a few shows. So that's good. So, you know, yeah, some people just they cannot just give a one word answer. And then, and our, you know, Steve, the usual uh, host, always wants people to explain something (laughs) if he doesn't like the answer to it. But uh, so
0: let's, uh, let's, let's jump right in. You want to go take the, take the first one? Yeah. uh, Uh, Do you support the 15 minute city concept? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have no idea how. Sorry, I'm going, to
1: blow it up. I'm going to blow it up myself. It's just so funny to me that this is a controversial topic. I don't want things close to me. That's you urbanist scum. <laughs> okay. True or false? The Ontario landlord and tenant board needs to be overhauled.
2: Yes, for everybody, for, for everyone's account. Like I, I'm not sure anyone's satisfied, which maybe that's the definition of a good system is when everyone's pissed off. But uh, <laughs> I think it could be better. Uh, tenants have rights that need to be protected. But conversely, there's also uh, tenants that that take advantage of the system. So uh, I, I think there, there could be a better system and, and really more about accountability and efficiency.
0: If you were forced to put all of your investable capital in stocks or real estate, which would you choose?
2: Well, there goes my institutional portfolio <laughs> management <laughs> mindset. But um,
1: I know I had to get that one. In. It's like <laughs> you had to choose one or the other. No, it's uh, listen. I, I
2: sort of vote. You vote with your feet, and uh, I'm part of a, of a private business where I've got to personally make capital contributions to to that uh, to our investments uh, as well. So I'm all in uh, for sure.
1: That's nice. Okay, so. There's a movie that you really want to see. Are you going to the theater or are you streaming it via pre-release at home? Uh, My, I I would, I love going to the theater. I would love to say that
2: I would do it. I just don't think I would do it. Like (laughs) life's busy. I've got three kids. We're running around. um, I think from an efficiency for size, I would sit at home, but I, 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 I can't wait for the day when I can start going back to the theaters. I do like it.
0: Is Toronto's vacancy tax going to do anything to improve no. housing affordability? <laughs> Stupid. Yeah. That's the right answer. Okay.
1: <laughs> Inflation is caused by too much money and too few goods. What is a better way to get rid of this excess cash? Higher taxes or higher interest rates?
2: So I think it's actually a little bit more complicated than that.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> but. I'm pretty sure we don't need higher taxes, so uh, I think it's the it's the other answer. Um, rates, but okay. it's probably a little bit more nuanced than that.
0: Give me a high level guess: how much can you get a percentage basis for an identical unit in a PBR project versus a condo for rent? Great question.
2: Uh, so we, we study this. We do surveys. We we uh, the challenge is not always having great data, but fundamentally we think sort of it's a five to twelve percent range. Um, Location dependent, building dependent, because the amenity package, the size, a bunch of other factors do matter. But um, we've studied this within our own portfolio, and uh, there is there is a value proposition for sure. That's
1: interesting. i kind of asked that one. So, uh, is rent replacement a good policy? Yes,
2: I, I think it's a good policy. I think um, you know, you taking. And this, I, like, I'm really involved with Toronto Community Housing Corporation, where we're we're trying to rebuild the the affordable portfolio for the city of Toronto, and um, we need to maintain that affordable stock because the stuff that we're building in the private sector has to be higher rent because of the economics and because of the cost to build. So I think we should be looking for opportunities where we can continue to add back uh, those affordable units. Now, whether there's a follow on question around employment, like having to replace office space. That's probably a different answer, yeah. but but the rental replacement, I, I do think, is a good thing. Um, could it be improved? Probably, but on a principal level, yes.
0: <laughs> All right. Last this one. Is a, do you like, this is a very Ben question. Are people that live in 3,000 square feet and larger single-family homes that are against developing the green belt <laughs> hypocrites? <laughs> <laughs> that feels like a leading question. <laughs> I think I got a punch in the face if I say
2: anything other than
1: no, other than yes. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate you being on the show. Um, if someone wants to find out about Woodborne, where do they go?
2: Uh, you can visit our website, which was built about 25 years ago, uh, which <laughs> is in the process of being revamped. But uh, yeah, Woodborne, uh, we're, we're, we're online, uh, et cetera. Perfect. Perfect. Well,
1: appreciate you being here again. And uh, it was a great conversation.
2: Thanks for having me. Appreciate Thanks, it. Nick.